what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I am a Jew. Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I, see, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Thank you, Keith. You may be seated. Well, just a reminder, we are going through John's Gospel. We are in chapter 18, the last section of chapter 18, and we're in the midst of what is uh, commonly referred to as the Passion. And uh, we have seen Jesus' arrest. We, last time I was speaking with you, uh, we looked at the, the encounter where, where Peter denies Christ three times and just that whole picture of, uh, of that comparison between Christ and Peter. And, and now we, we move into the scene where Pilate is interacting with Jesus. Now, as we begin to go to this text, there's really two issues that are pressing on my heart as we come to this text um, that walks us through this trial of Jesus. The first one is really a a pastoral concern. Hold on a second here. I pressed the wrong button. There we go, maybe. All right, there we go. Let's see. Let me just check it and see if it's where. All right, there we go. All right. So there's this pastoral concern. The first one uh, is is found in First Timothy chapter six. I'd invite you to go to First Timothy chapter six, if you would please. And there's one verse in there, but it's in a context, and um, it is this very text that we are studying today that Paul refers to in the context of his charge to Timothy. Now. For me as a pastor, when Paul speaks to Timothy, 
I want to pay attention because the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy certainly have bearing on my role and function as a pastor. So as we go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's begin at verse 11. Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's a powerful passage, isn't it? And it's a powerful passage for anyone who is going to stand before any group and handle the word of God. Here is a charge given to Timothy by Paul, and there is this this witness, this testimony that is being thrust on him as he gives this charge. Now, a charge is an endorsing, it is a commissioning that is done through words on a particular person. And here, Paul is doing that with Timothy. He's charging him, he's putting his stamp of of approval and blessing on him, and he is, um, in a sense, commencing ministry in his life before God and before Jesus Christ. And so, as he does that, he is doing that in the presence of God and Christ, but in particular here, this Christ who makes this good confession. And friends, as your pastor, that is what I hope to do in my ministry with you, and that is to make a good confession. As I teach you the Word of God, as I counsel you in your marriage and family and all other things, as I come alongside you in the trials that you have, I want to make a good confession. Just like Timothy made, because we're told that, that's what Paul is saying, but also just like Jesus made in the presence of Pilate. So what we have here in John's Gospel, in fact, in all the Gospels, is this encounter that Jesus has with Pilate. And in that encounter, Paul says, he gave a good confession. Now, friends, that is not just something for me. That is also something for all of us to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm called to. That is what we are all called to. And it is a charge to all God's children to approach God's word and the gospel with an attitude of respect so that we don't stain it with our extra thoughts, which is so easy for us to do. It is a charge to all of God's children that we don't bring it under reproach. In other words, that we we don't give any reason for it, the word of God or the gospel, to be mocked for any reason because we're not handling it appropriately. the, The world scoffs when the word of God is mishandled. They laugh at us 
when we come up with crazy ideas using the Word of God, but it's not what the Word of God says. And they are justified. We should not be guilty of that, which means that we need to handle the Word of God faithfully, that our confession is like Christ's confession, like Timothy's confession. It is a good confession. It is a faithful representation of the gospel and the content of the Word of God. And so we are to be people of the Word, seeking to know it, seeking to apply it, seeking to proclaim it until the Lord Jesus returns. And friends, this is my pastoral concern for myself, and it is my pastoral concern also for all of you who are under my teaching. That we would be people of the word. And that we, as a result, would have a good confession any time we are brought to bear witness about who Jesus is and what he has done. That's the pastoral concern. There is also what I'm calling an eternal concern. Because in this passage, that famous statement by Pilate is made, right? What is truth? And there's been so much written about this uh, from so many different angles. I mean, it's, it's very philosophical, you know, what, what can be brought up. If people read so much more into that statement than maybe what is meant by what Pilate is saying here. But truth has become, in our postmodern world, a very nebulous term. Try and nail it down. It's like jello. You know, it kind of squeaks out from under you. It just kind of moves all over the place. It is what, what I perceive it to be. It is what you want it to be. It is something that you decide and no one can tell you otherwise. The reality is that in our present world, if we talk about truth in a philosophical sense, there really isn't any set standard. Or if there is, there shouldn't be. Because truth is what I want it to be. And that's why you go into some of the schools today and they have these new spelling programs that basically say, we're not concerned how a child spells a word. If that is how they want to spell it, that's okay. Well, the English language here, you know, the idea is it shouldn't be locked in. Just spell however you want. And some of you are saying, if I had known that, I would have gotten through college. I mean, listen, when, when I go to the bank and I say, listen, I need to get some money out, um, I'd like, you know, $100, and they hand me a $100 bill, I say, no, 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 I want like 10 of those. Well, no, no, this is a $100 bill. Well, it, it's a $100 bill to you, but it's not to me. See, this, this, this truth being nebulous means I can make it whatever I want it to be, and who benefits from that? I do because I then create my own truth and I am the master of my own truth. It's also why the public opinion poll has become so popular in more recent years. Now, it's not something that's limited to more recent years. But a public opinion poll can be taken and measured to say whatever you want it to say. Because there's no standard. There really is no measuring stick to determine what truth is. And what is false? And so public opinion ultimately is the standard, unless, of course, you do not like public opinion, and then you go to the Supreme Court and you change it. See, it's all nebulous, and it's all twisted around. And so those who are in power, or those who think that they have the knowledge, 
those who are in positions of responsibility, they then exercise their pursuit of truth. Now hear this, we also must be careful in the context of living in a society that we are not just floating around with different truths. The reason you and I are Christians is because we believe a gospel that is not nebulous, that is based on facts, that is based on historical record, that is based on a, a body of truth called the Bible that has been you know, referenced and sought out and, and established and verified as being true over and over and over again, and the evidence is there pushing us to understand that the gospel preached, the gospel believed, is the gospel that was actually accomplished on the cross by Jesus Christ. That's truth. That is evidence. So in reality, truth is not based on a universal measure in our culture, but the measure of what I or a particular group wants or desires and has the power to see take place. Now friends, this should not come as a surprise to us. So this, this statement, what is truth, has rippling effects on how we view our world and how even the church thinks about the world. But it, it shouldn't surprise us. Go to um, Romans chapter 1, if you would, please. Now, you know Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, is really a description of a, of a culture or a society that just starts going downhill, right? And, and eventually, they're just, they're just given over to themselves. We'll pick it up at verse 18, but ultimately, the focal point here is going to be verse 25. But I want to pick it up at 18 because I want you to see the flow of what's going on here. For the wrath of God is... Oh, don't talk about the wrath of God. You know, stop with the wrath of God stuff because that's just nonsense. Well, listen, God's word reveals the wrath of God and we're going to embrace it because he says it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the what? The truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, but they're suppressing it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are what? Without excuse. Well, if, if truth is what you make it, then how can you be held responsible for what you believe? If there's a standard, you can. If there isn't, you are with excuse. But here, according to God's word, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, that God gave them up or gave them over to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, do we see that? Society that doesn't want God at all exchanges the truth that God reveals to that society, exchanges it for a lie. And when they exchange it for a lie, God says, listen, I will give you over to what you want, but you are not without excuse. 
I will hold you accountable for your actions. That's hard stuff. It's a warning for us. But when Jesus came to the earth and took upon himself the form of man, something significant happened. If you go back to now John chapter 1, we're told that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, we're told this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, what? And truth. So Jesus then, in his person, in his very being, is truth. So this encounter, when Pilate says, what is truth? Pilate is veering off into philosophical realms when the actual glory of the one who is true is standing before him. It's an incredible and powerful moment in time. That same truth, John says, is also the light. And that same light exposes what is real and teaches us what is true. And when the light shines, the cockroaches don't like it. And they scurry away from the light because it reveals too much about them. It condemns them with the truth of who they really are. And so as we look at John's record of this civil trial, it becomes very clear that Jesus is not the only person on trial. For in this passage, truth is revealed, it is exposed, it is put on display for all to see. You see, Jesus is on trial, okay, but so are the Jews, so is Pilate, and so is this angry mob. In this passage, we'll come to see face-to-face what what is true and what is real about these individuals or these groups. Each of them has an attitude toward the claim that Jesus makes to be king of the Jews. So the question for us today is this. What is true about your attitude, Jesus, and his claim to be king of the Jews? As we go through this paragraph or this section here, We can point our fingers to them, but ultimately we're pointing our fingers to them to be, in a sense, a mirror to what is going on in our hearts. And maybe for some of us it would be, we are not even children of God. We're not even truly followers of God. It may be that we are genuine believers. We're genuine followers, but we drift away into some of these territories. Now, just a little bit about structure here, a little bit about how this is all put together. Just like our last section where we have this inside-outside kind of dynamic going on, we have it again here. Uh, the, the Jewish leaders come, and they will not go into the Gentile residence. And so Pilate goes out, and he talks to them. Then he comes in, and he interviews Jesus, and he goes out again. There's that whole kind of inside-outside kind of perspective. And as we work through our text, we'll discover Four attitudes, then, or responses men have toward Jesus' claim to be the king of the Jews. So the the structure helps us see those encounters um, unfold. Then then just just think a little bit about the context. Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, John has chosen 
to not include some sections that the other Gospels reveal in his Gospel. Um, He has not included the fact that there was a trial before the Sanhedrin where false testimony was given against Jesus to bring um, uh, you know, this false accusation, but they, they, they could find nothing except for the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, and they determined that is blasphemy. So there is a context going on here as we move into this particular passage of Scripture. Listen to what Bruce Mill says, says just about the, the context here. We're faced with a paradoxical fact that the one perfect life our planet has witnessed universally recognized as the epitome of goodness, love, kindness, purity, and integrity, reached its conclusion in a court facing capital charges. He who lived as the Holy One dies as the condemned one. He who breathed as the guiltless expires as the guilty. As strange as it may seem, though, as much as we are in this text and we're saying, you're not really saying that, are you? You're not really accusing him of that, are you? How could you even come up with that? At the same time that we're feeling that, the very fact of all these accusations and and the direction all this is going is fundamental to God's plan of redemption. What man thinks he is doing for himself To get rid of Jesus is the very means by which the Father and Christ in eternity past had determined this thread of gospel would shine forth to that cross. It's amazing. They had no clue. But God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit know exactly what's taking place. Now, if you want to just follow along or listen, Matthew 27 gives us a little fuller transition. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. So they've already determined he needs to die. That's their judgment. That's their verdict. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And now we turn our attention back to John's gospel at verse 28, where we'll see the first response or attitude to the fact that Jesus is king of the Jews. The first one is this. The truth about Jewish leaders. And I'm using the expression religious hypocrisy. Let's just read verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now John is very determined here to to give us the detail of this narrative to show us the religious hypocrisy of these ruling elite. Notice, first of all, what I'm calling their misguided consciences. Their misguided consciences. Now, one jumping into this passage at this verse in John's Gospel might be tempted to say something like this. Oh, wow. These Jews are, are quite pious and spiritual, aren't they? I mean... They're wanting to worship God, and they're careful about what they do. and They're so careful that they don't want to put themselves in any position that might cause them to be defiled and not to be able to participate in the Passover and the feasts that are after that. That's a pretty outstanding thing. That's a good thing. They're careful. Their consciences must be very, very careful, and and they're, they're zealous 
for righteousness. But friends, these zealous and pious Jews are eager to seek cleansing before God while at the same time plotting and scheming the destruction of God's beloved Son. These pious and zealous Jews are eager to keep the Passover lamb while killing the true Passover lamb. There is hypocrisy going on here. There is a conscience that is seared. There's a conscience that is misguided. Now, the consciences of unbelievers is pretty unusual. In some cases, that conscience can be hardened, seared, dead to the point that it feels nothing. I think some of you probably have family members or friends or co-workers that they're just like, hey, listen, I just don't want to hear. I just don't care. I don't want to hear. I don't, it doesn't mean anything to me, so just be quiet. I mean, their consciences are seared. The, the, the word of God has no effect on them, apparently, because their conscience has been seared. There's no feeling left in it at all. In other cases, however, the conscience of an unbeliever produces a form of godliness that is full of zeal for lesser matters of religion. Let me try and paint the picture here. It is consumed with the observance of outward ceremonies while at the same time they are slaves to degrading and immoral sin. Now just, just stop and think. This is what came to my mind first when I thought about this. Imagine the Irish and Italian, no offense to those people groups, um, mobsters of years gone by. All of them went to church. All of them welcomed the man of the cloth into their homes and lives. All of them considered themselves to be good Catholics while at the same time plowing down their enemies. But hey, we're good Catholics. We go to church. We take mass. We give consciences that are misguided on one side, can be pursuing evil of their own desires, and on the other side, feeling satisfied that we are actually standing before God and we are accepted. The foolishness of that thinking is a horrible reality in our culture, friends. Some people are zealous in keeping Lent, giving up all sorts of different things and ending up with the celebration of Carnival. Have you, just, have you just thought about that whole concept? God, I want to honor you with giving things up in my life, and then after that, woohoo, party! Forget about you! What's up with that? It's a misguided conscience, it's hypocrisy. Now, lest we just point our fingers to them and not think about ourselves, that would be folly on our part. Jesus, of course, is concerned that we emphasize heart over ceremony. But to be careful that we don't try to make up, hear this, for the lack of heart growth with outward forms that we think are pleasing to God. So you haven't been spending time with God. You haven't been prioritizing Him in your relationship. You have not been obedient. You know you've been pursuing selfish desires, but you know what? 
I'm, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to take communion, and that's going to solve it all. You're making up through outward ceremonies that you have created now as religious forms as a means of making up for your sinfulness and your disobedience. Now, coming to church and reading your Bible and praying and the Lord's table that we're going to celebrate here are all good things but they are not outward forms that make up for heart conditions. And we can be so very, very susceptible to approach our relationship with God in that way. And we think, well, you know, I'll make it up by this, this, this. No, you make it up by falling on your knees and crying out to God and say, forgive me of my sinfulness. Having been restored with God, having repented of your sin, having been humble before him and restored now to him, you go about saying, I need to be with the body of Christ. I need the word of God in my life. I need to commune with you. Oh, I need to remind myself of what you did on the cross through the celebration of the Lord's table. That's a whole different means of approaching those things. What God wants to hear from us is this, Psalm 119, 128, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. So friends, it's crucially important for us to be reminded again and again that receiving baptism by whatever mode, by taking communion in whatever church, by attending worship with whatever regularity, offering prayers of whatever length, giving money of whatever amount in themselves, do not, have not, will not, cannot save us from our sins and their inevitable judgment. Religion cannot achieve our redemption. Ceremonies cannot save. And friends, what we have here with this religious elite is this hypocrisy that is rampant, that is so fully in their persona, in their being. But friends, it can also be something that we struggle with too. There's also what I'm calling a manufactured charge. A manufactured charge. Look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What do you think, we're just playing a game? Now, at face value, I'm kind of tempted to say simply, if, if it isn't an evasive answer, I don't know what is. Um, but there's actually more going on here. And, and through, the, through the Gospel of John, and even if you look at the other Gospels, you find out that the Jewish leaders have been plotting to get Jesus. They're planning. They're looking for ways to do it. They're, they're, they're plotting to arrest him. They're plotting to bring an accusation against him. They're plotting to kill him and to put him to death. And so now, according to this, this Roman law, only a Roman court could sanction a sentence of execution. And so in order for them to kill Jesus and stop his influence in Jerusalem, they had not only to charge him with blasphemy for, for claiming to be the Messiah, but get this, they also had to present Jesus as a threat to Rome. See, the, the manufactured charge isn't that Jesus claims to be God. The manufactured charge is that Pilate, Jesus, wants your throne. He wants to overthrow politically. Now, just think about the hypocrisy of this. In the Jews' minds, 
what kind of Messiah are they looking for? They're looking for a political Messiah. That's what the disciples are struggling with, right? They want a Messiah to come and to restore Israel to its rightful place like it was in David's time where there was a king and strong. And, and now they're accusing Jesus as actually being that usurper. That's not what he is here to do at all. So it's a manufactured charge. Oh, sir, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And that is who he is. But he is not out to take Pilate's position or Rome's position. That's not his purpose. However, Pilate clearly has already been in the mix of this process. Remember Jesus in the garden? And what we're told there, there was this huge amount of soldiers that came to get Jesus. There were Roman soldiers they're palace guards, and that description of the Roman soldiers was like, there's probably two, three hundred of them. Well, who gave them permission to go and help? You get what's going on here. Pilate was already aware of what was going on with this man by the name of Jesus. All of Jerusalem had been speaking about him. It's not that he didn't know anything about him. So Pilate was concerned what's happening here. And probably there was some kind of communication with the Jewish leaders here during that time to get those soldiers saying, listen, we want to arrest this guy. And we want to condemn him. And so now Pilate has him, has him come. And he's saying, well, you know, what's the charge? And they say, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him. Oh, it's almost like frustration. What do you mean, what is the charge? Now, it would be one thing to say that Jesus claimed to be God. It was another thing that he claimed to be the king of the Jews who was wanting to raise up a rebellion. That is not what Jesus came to do. In fact, Jesus clearly said, Luke chapter 23, verse 1 and 2, um, well, that, that's talking about these false accusations. So in Luke chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus says here, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Je Jesus was very supportive in that sense of Rome as the one that was ruling at that point in time. But because there is a desire to get rid of Jesus and his influence, the religious elite think nothing about manufacturing an accusation against him. And that's where you go to Luke chapter 23. And this is what it says. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. See, that's partial truth. It's a false truth. And, and, and the, the, the partial truth that, they're, that I'm referring to here is the fact that you know, he did present himself to be the Messiah, but not the kind of Messiah they're talking about. Now, friends, this is one way to deal with Jesus that you don't like. You manufacture the facts to create a Jesus of your own making. It can be a Jesus you want to reject. In other words, Jesus that is harsh, unloving, always ruining uh, and, and raining on my parade who leaves me in bondage to religious forms, all that kind of stuff. I mean, when people think about, oh, I wouldn't follow Jesus, man, you're just bound, you can't do this, can't do that. I have a totally misguided concept of what it means to walk with God. It could also be a Jesus that is only to your liking, encouraging, kind, and caring for the needs of downtrodden and poor, and neglecting the sin that separates man from God. He's just... He's a soft, gentle Jesus. These are Jesuses that we have created. So we take 
bits and pieces of the facts and create our own manufactured assessment of who Jesus is. And friends, that is hypocrisy. It is manufacturing Jesus to be who you want him to be, both negatively or positively. But the light of the truth has shined in the darkness and into the world and shows us that Jesus is the Son of God, full of grace and truth. And so now we move into the truth about Pilate, the truth about Pilate. And I'm calling this political pragmatism. And I don't want us to get caught up with the political side here. That's what Pilate is doing from his perspective as a politician. But as we look at it from ourselves, it's the word pragmatism that I think is really important for us to grab a hold of here. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? That was the necessary question to begin the actual trial proceedings. In order to take anyone to trial, there had to be a question and there had to be a charge brought against him. Verse 30, and they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him to yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now you get the impression that Pilate is a little perturbed, remember, to be bothered so early in the morning by a horde of Jewish leaders. I mean, why, why can't you just deal with him? We arrest him, you find him guilty, you do what you need to do, why bother me? I have other things going on. However, although he helped them get this blasphemer, he still wants them to, to deal with it. As we continue on, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And all of a sudden, Pilate realizes he has been drawn into this political moment that he is realizing is turning into something bigger than he really wants it to be. So he's responding in a pragmatic way. I really don't want to deal with this. I have lots to do. I really want you to settle this for yourselves. That's not really my world. It's not my culture. I'm not a Jew. Um, I have other things to do. And I've kind of summarized it this way. First of all, I think what he's saying is this. I'm just too busy. Pragmatism says I'm too busy. It, it, it isn't that, uh, sorry, I should say this. That is how our sophisticated culture often responds to the claim that Jesus is the king of the Jews. You know what? I'm, I'm just too busy right now to stop and to think and to consider that question. I, I really don't have time to consider it if he's God or not or if I'm sinful. I have a job to do. I have a family to feed. I have you know, baseball games to go to, soccer games to go to, pools to go to. Giants are on TV right now and I'm going shopping. I just don't have time to think about whether this is really that important. And it's, it, is, is, it is a response, and you know, we are busy, I understand that, but it is also a means by which we just push the truth of the gospel away. Secondly, I would say it's also uh, this attitude of saying, I really just don't want to get involved. Right? I just really don't want to be involved in what's happening here. It's another way our sophisticated society is pragmatic to this, this claim that Jesus is God. You know, listen, you're, you're, you religious people can all fight about who Jesus is, but I have better things to do, right? I just don't want to get involved in that. Yeah, just, just go, you know, you want to believe this, you want to believe that's fine, it's up to you. I just, I just don't want to be involved. But we'll see that Pilate 
will be forced to come face to face with Jesus. Now, friends, that is a gift for Pilate. What do we know about everyone in this world? They will one day what? Come face to face with Jesus. But by that time, it'll be too late. Because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so when you hear the gospel today, today is that opportunity to listen and to respond. Now John takes us further in this narrative by giving this this narrative statement in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, we're so familiar with the gospel story that we think, oh, yeah, we know Jesus is going to die by crucifixion. But the only people that could crucify Jesus were the Romans. If Jesus is found guilty by the Jews, the form of execution is what? Stoning. So all of this, all of this, I want to say, this this play unfolding, is all part of God's divine plan because Jesus throughout the Gospels has said, I will be lifted up. I will be lifted up. Mark's Gospel, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and I'll rise again over and over and over again. It's what Jesus is saying. It's how he's going to die. The only way that can happen is if Rome gets involved. So not only was it not enough for the Jews to find him guilty of blasphemy, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had already determined that he also needed to be found guilty, although innocent, by the Romans so that he could suffer death by crucifixion. And John's just making that point here, that what Jesus said now is fulfilled by this. And of course, to the Jew, their Messiah being cursed by crucifixion was, it's like a square circle. It just, it couldn't be. And even to this day, Jews interpret Isaiah 53 as as Israel. They don't interpret it as Christ because they cannot comprehend of a Messiah suffering. But it is by God's design. Now, Pilate's pragmatism will continue in his private questioning of Jesus. It will ultimately be on display when he goes out and faces the mob. After he's talked with Jesus and he comes out and he says, I find no guilt in him. Notice what we have here beginning at middle of verse 38. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? It's Jesus. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So what is, what is sad about that little encounter there is that all that Pilate really needed to say was this, I find no guilt in him, full stop. That's all he really had to say. That's all he was required to say. But there was something in Pilate that saw this rippling political quagmire out there, and he had to, in his mind, come up with a creative plan to appease the people, to to take the responsibility off of his shoulders. And in his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, listen, here is this man, he's innocent, he's been accused of being a rebel, and he's not. And then there's Barabbas. We're told here he's a robber. If you go to Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, they talk about him being a 
uh, the one who headed up an insurrection, literally there, he was a terrorist against the government. And he had committed murder. And so he is in his mind saying, listen, if I offer one of these to these people, certainly they're going to choose the innocent man over the guilty man. But that is not what happens. Pilate plays this, this political game. It was pragmatic political suicide, friends, to go public and underestimate political opinion. His pragmatism backfired on him. Now, even as we get into um, chapter 9, we find him continuing to appease the crowd, continuing with beating Jesus and ridiculing him, thinking, listen, all right, this is, this is it. You've had your fun now that I find this man innocent. He says again in chapter 9. But they still want him to be crucified. Friends, pragmatism regarding the deity of Christ is extremely prevalent in the church. Many, hear this, many are willing to conform to a religious Jesus and the religious forms of the church in order to get along with family. As if a little Jesus isn't a bad thing. I mean, summer is the time for vacation Bible schools around the communities, right? And how many of those kids come from homes that do not care about the things of God? But probably in the thinking of the parents, it's like, you know what? A little Jesus isn't a bad thing. Oh, they can have it. That'll be okay. It's pragmatism. But what about you, Mom? What about you, Dad? Oh, no, no, I don't need that. But maybe my children can benefit from knowing from what is good and bad and right and wrong. Others are willing to put up with a little church so that they can win over a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They may know that being a believer is a requirement for any Christian seeking marriage, but they go through the motions because they want to be accepted, they want to be considered a part, they want to win that love, and so they attend church, they go to some extra meetings or activities. They would rather not have to deal with who Jesus is, but are willing to put up with it if it helps them get what they want. We just go on and on about the pragmatism of, of people who are going through life trying to say, okay, God, you know, I'm, I'm showing you this, I'm doing this, but I'm just really pretending to be all these things because I'm getting what I want and what I need. I remember in a church uh, when I was in, um, in Buffalo, one of the things that we experienced in that church was there were a couple of individuals that came to the church over a course of time, and they were insurance salesmen. Not, nothing against you if you're an insurance salesman, okay? Unless you do this. And this can be true of anything, whether it be you know, Amway or Shackley or just add to whatever it might be. The idea is I'm going to be a member of this church for the next four years, and I'm going to go through the directory, and I'm going to meet with everyone and talk about insurance, and, gonna, and after four years I'm going to move on to the next church. And do the, you see what I'm saying? It's pragmatism. It's not really honoring and worshiping God. I am there to get what I want. That kind of stuff happens, guys. Pragmatism, ultimately about the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is uh, the King of kings, and that I am to follow him is brushed aside so that I can accomplish what I want, that I can get what I need in the context of my life and coming from the church and coming from the people of God. 
Now, friends, beware of that kind of pragmatism in your heart. Why are you a part of Gateway Bible Church? Are you here because you want to get what you want? Or are you here because you are a child of God and you're uniting together with other believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ and it's a place where you can use your gifts for the glory of God and by being a part of the body of Christ, you ultimately will receive benefit from other people who are also part of the body of Christ who will help nurture you and strengthen you and push you toward being like Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the truth about Jesus. Now certainly, just like you know, I live up by Cal State East Bay, um, you know as you look around, that, that Cal State building is like a landmark around here, right? Now people say, well, where do you live? Well, I, see that building up there? I mean, most places around the area, you can say, there is Cal State East Bay, right? And one of these days they're going to knock it down. I won't be able to do that anymore, but we'll have to figure out something. I don't know. Um, but, but what we have here in this context, though, is, is like the building of Cal State East Bay rising up, okay? And in, in all of these encounters where Jesus is speaking, where Jesus is the focus, he is the one that is rising up. And that's where we get this whole idea of his light is shining and exposing the truth of those that are around. He's bringing reality to what's going on in the hearts of these people. But now we get some reality and some truth about Jesus. So look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? The accusation that is being brought is that Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews, but Jesus begins to probe Pilate. Is this you speaking, Pilate? Are these your thoughts? Are you actually really asking me a question you want an answer or or are you simply saying what you've been told? What do you think, Pilate? And so Pilate responds, clearly understanding that he was being challenged now by the defendant. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now it's clear from history books that Pilate had a very low opinion of the Jews that he was overseeing. In fact, he did a number of things just to frustrate them. He enjoyed doing that. And here, there's a sense in which Pilate is showing his disdain for the Jews by saying, am I a Jew? I mean, just kind of like, you know, why would I even care who is king of the Jews? Your own nation, he says, though, the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? There has to be some basis for the fact that you're standing here in front of me. Now, I can understand as a ruler, why is this person standing in front of me? I mean, why would the ruler of a region in Judea have a person standing in front of them for trial? There has to be some basis for it. There has to be a charge. So here Jesus stands and in saying the next few words acknowledges two things. Number one, that he is the king of the Jews. Secondly, that his kingdom is not of this world, and because that is true, Pilate, you do not to be, need to be concerned. Now, let's just think about those realities. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. By the way, this is, this is the only place you'll find this in the gospel. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. If I was a king of this world, I, I would have armies right now. I wouldn't be in this room with you, and I have armies that are already fighting to overthrow you. 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus is saying to Pilate, I'm not setting up a kingdom that will interfere with the Roman government, some massive armies or some overthrow of Jerusalem. No, the only dominion that Jesus exercised was over men's hearts. The only weapons of, of warfare his subjects employed were spiritual weapons. So you, Pilate, really have nothing to fear from me. So we also see in this passage Jesus' origin. He's not of this world. Secondly, we see his mission to bear witness to the truth. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. Right? Going back to being a king, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. So I, the purpose, the reason I was born was to be the king of the Jews. That's the purpose I was born. But I have also come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But of course we know from John's Gospel, not only did Jesus come to bear witness to the truth, he came, comes to bear witness about himself because he is the truth, right? So the light has come into the darkness. John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So even here in the presence of the Roman governor, Jesus testifies about who he is and what he has come to do. The light is shining in the darkness of that room. Pilate is face to face with the truth. Jesus himself, his moment had come to consider Jesus' words. How will he respond? There's silence. And Pilate responds, what is truth? Now, there's a whole bunch of debate as to what Pilate means by that, in the sense of how did he say it? And did he say kind of like, well, you know, what is truth? Or was it kind of like a, what is truth anyway? I mean, there, there's a sense in which, was he, was he trying to avoid Jesus' questions? Was he throwing up his hands in the air? Was this some philosophical statement? To understand Pilate's words, we need to understand that in that age, there was a freedom of religion of sort. You were free to worship the God of your choosing as long as you swore allegiance to Caesar. So, Roman culture was chock full of various philosophies trying to answer the question, what is truth? So my best understanding of Pilate's response to Jesus in saying what is truth is that it was a sarcastic way of appeasing his conscience to the truth presented to him. In other words, Pilate is saying, who can really tell what truth is? And this is reinforced by his immediate behavior. Boom. He leaves. He's not wanting to find out, well, hey, tell me, tell me more. What is truth? That wasn't what was going on here. It was really more of a, a sarcastic resignation. Who can really tell what the truth is? He leaves and goes out to the crowd. Now, the irony of this text and John's gospel is full of irony is that the question of truth is being asked by the one who is true. And listen, man tends to get philosophical 
when faced with the person of Christ. You can hide behind philosophy when you're faced with the light of God's truth. Well, who can really know? A number of years ago, the emergent movement came out. I've heard about it. And one of the main championing words that I heard from people that that was like, well, you know, this, this, this Christian thing, this is such a mystery. It's like you really can't know that you know. It's like, what are you talking about? How do you know that the Bible's, you know, really what it's saying it is? You just can't know. I mean, it's just, it just became this mystical kind of nebulous thing. But God's word is truth. And Jesus stands here and he is the truth. And Pilate is saying, can you even know the truth? And the reality is Jesus has been going through Judea and Galilee speaking the truth and saying things like, I am the Son of Man, I am the Lamb of God, I'm the bread of life, I'm the river of living water, I'm the light of the world, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the Word, full of grace and truth. Those weren't just nebulous things he was throwing out there just to kind of all be a quagmire. They were specific illustrations to shed light on the fact that he is the true Son of God. His testimony has not, does not, will not change. His confession before Pilate is true. It is a a, a confession of integrity. Every time something is brought against him, what does he do? He responds truthfully. He says, well, you've heard, you've listened. If you'd been there, you would have found out. I'm not saying anything different than I've said all along. And Jesus doesn't deny the fact that he is the son of God. Here before Pilate, he says, yeah, you said that. That's what you're saying. Yeah. His compassion and confession, even in his trial, is an example of his divine integrity. Now, even when the Jews think that they have him in their grip, we find that they are blind to the fact that their grip is the very means by which a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, will take away man's sin When man hides behind such philosophical statements like this that believe that truth cannot be discovered, he is actually left guilty before God. You can hide behind philosophy, but that doesn't remove the fact that you're guilty with the facts. Now listen, my daughter Deanna just recently, she's not in here, I can talk about it. She just recently went and and took her driver's written test. You can't go in there and say, well, yeah, I know I missed 30 questions, but what is truth anyway, right? What is, what is the driving code anyway, right? And somehow hide behind that and say, you know, you should, you should give me that anyway. But the reality is that many people think about that as far as the relationship with God. I know God says this, and I go, but you know, that's not, how can that be? You know, I just, I just want a God that, that will love me and will be there for me. I mean, it's like, you know, he's like a big cuddly toy that you rub when you need him. But God is revealed for us. His truth is there. John's gospel is all about what? Evidence that leads us to, be, to belief that when we do believe, produces life, and it's everlasting life. It's abundant life. And here we, again, are given evidence, evidence, evidence. Pilate is given evidence. And Pilate does not respond in the way that we hope he would. 
hear this, God never leaves an, any honest, diligent inquirer without light and guidance. Say it again, God never leaves any honest, diligent inquirer without light and guidance. If someone comes to you and says, you know, I, I just want to know, I want to know God, uh, I just don't know that he wants me, I don't know that I want to the elect, and it's like, listen, if, if you're saying you want God, trust me, he is not saying, no, you can't. He is, he is something in you that is drawing you to, uh, drawing you to himself, and, and that person is going to be in this pursuit of, of Christ. He's not saying, no, just get away, you can't. He, he is always going to be giving light and guidance to those who are honest and diligently inquiring of him. But pride gets in the way of the truth. Because many times people are not willing to go down on their knees and eagerly plead with God to teach them the truth. Or sometimes laziness gets in the way of the truth because the word of God is something that requires that I read it or that I grow in Christ. And that can be hard. And friends, the, the, the walk with God is not an easy thing. It's not just, well, I did my church thing and now I go on my merry way. It's an ongoing daily thing, is it not? So here we see Jesus, divine integrity, perfect example of a true confession. Now I want us to, just to, as we bring things to a close in this text, to notice the truth about the mob. Now I'm calling them the mob. John, we don't necessarily get all the details of this mob. The other, other gospels give us an awareness of what is, is taking place here. Um, this is not just the Jewish leadership. This is a crowd that has been gathered outside while this is all going on, certainly stirred up by the Jewish leadership, but now all these people are gathered. And so now we, we jump into verse 38. After he had said this, you know, what is truth, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. <laughs> but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate miscalculated, yes, but the people have two options, and there is an urgency of decision on their part. Choose to free Jesus, the king of the Jews, or choose to free Barabbas, the murdering, thievering terrorist and enemy of Rome. And so the, the crowd, now filled with hatred, cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, why do I call this rebellious ideology? Get this, the choice is clear. Either we look to the evidence that John is giving us and believe, which results in life, everlasting life, abundant life, or we reject it and we remain in darkness. Either we accept that Jesus is the king of the Jews or we reject him and choose someone or something else. And to reject Christ is to rebel. And to reject Christ is to impose a man-made ideology that replaces Christ. And so these Jews who are now gathered are saying, we don't want you. We want something else. And whether that comes as a frenzy, whether that comes just as, you know, this kind of mob, kind of, you know, everyone is, is, is speaking this way and it's stirred up by this religious leadership, it is still what they're crying out. They are rebelling against the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of Man, the Messiah, their very own Messiah that wept for them. Friends, this is what 
the mob does. It rejects Jesus as God. It embraces something or someone else. Now, it may be in the name of religion. It may be in the name of politics. It may be in the name of the environment, or it may be in the name of anything. But if we reject Christ, we've rejected his, king, his kingdom, and we remain in darkness. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The light shone in the darkness, but his own people rejected that light. Now let's just bring this to a close and prepare ourselves even for the Lord's table this morning. Some concluding thoughts. Simply one major thought, and that is this, Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty for being a terrorist against Rome, and he is set free. Jesus is innocent of any charge against him of being a terrorist against Rome, and he is ultimately condemned to die. You see the injustice in that. It was Barabbas who was guilty and took Jesus' place physically. You and I are guilty of sin, but Jesus takes our place spiritually. There's something about Barabbas that is a picture here of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He suffered when we should be suffering. He died when we should suffer death. And friends, as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, we remember that Jesus Christ took our place on that cross when we deserved all the wrath of God. Jesus hanging on that cross not only was the Lamb of God, but he was also the object of the wrath of God that we deserve. He took our place. Innocent, guiltless, loving, gracious, true, man of integrity. For you, for me, he did this. Lord, help us today to contemplate what truth is. Or better said, Lord, who truth is. And when we know who truth is, and that that truth shines a light on anything that claims to be truth, Lord, we have a better understanding of who we are. Lord, what we need to do to come to you. And Lord, today I wonder, there may be some here that recognize their own hypocrisy. And Lord, I ask that there would be a time even in the next few moments here where your Holy Spirit would, would, would squeeze and prod that conscience to recognize the hypocrisy that is there and that there would be repentance and, and confession and a restoration. Lord, maybe there'd be new life, Lord, because of the time that we spent together in your word. Lord, I ask that your truth would reveal any pragmatism that we have Ways in which we just think that church is a good thing and religion is a good thing and just talking about Jesus is a good thing, but we really don't have any relationship with you. We're just here and interacting with you because we're trying to satisfy someone else and please others. But Lord, it's not something that we really desire. Oh, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would grip us and show us that reality and convict us of our sin. And Lord, that you, that you would show us not only our conviction and our need for, for, for who you are, to pay for our sin, but Lord, that we would also see the glory 
that comes in knowing you. Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our heart, Lord. And then, Lord, would we be mindful that we would not take the rebellious road of, of trying to just find some other way, some other substitute rather than you. But Lord, may we see you as that man that we are to behold. Pilate says, behold the man. Lord, you use that as, a, as language in the early church to reinforce the fact that your son was a man, fully man, fully God, who hung on the cross for our sin. May we see the beauty of your integrity, the beauty of your sovereignty, the beauty of your control in all of these affairs, working your plan, ultimately, Lord, so that we could have, through you, new life, eternal life, abundant life. May we celebrate, Lord, what you've done in your body and done by shedding your blood as we celebrate the Lord's table in your precious holy name. Amen. If you are visiting with us this morning, um, I would invite you, if you know Jesus,